Trusting God is, I think, one of the hardest things Christians do. Trusting in God every minute of every day, as we are called to do, I think is one of the more difficult things that we can do as Christians. Although it sounds easy enough, trust God, trust God more, or if you just add the word just at the beginning, just trust God more, that doesn't actually make it any easier, does it? Trusting God, the kind of trust and the kind of dependence on God that the Bible actually calls us all to, it doesn't come naturally for any of us. And increasingly in our day, it's actually looked upon with actually more disdain than anything. Like as if it's completely abnormal. Why would you possibly trust God? Your life is what you make of it. Your life is up to you. I don't know why you'd want to trust God at all. I think we'd like to think too that perhaps the older we get, the easier it just becomes trusting in God, but I'm not sure that longevity as a Christian actually makes all that much difference. You don't hit 35 years old or 55 years old or suddenly turn 80 and suddenly, magically, trusting in God just becomes a whole lot easier. I think this is one of the reasons I actually really love to talk to senior saints, some of the uh, octogenarians among us, because They've walked with Jesus for maybe 40 or 50 or 60 years, and so yes, they can look back on all the different times and circumstances in their life where he has met them and he has provided grace and he's been faithful to them. And yet they're honest enough to be able to say, but trusting in God in the last few years of my earthly life, that's not always easy. It's not without challenge, and sometimes it's actually very difficult. I actually find some great encouragement in, in what I don't read in the Bible, because the Bible never, never tells us that trusting in God should be easy, or that trusting in God will just get sort of magically easier the longer you do it. Instead, what we actually read in our Bibles, brothers and sisters, are all kinds of circumstances and situations where the people of God were called by God to do a very hard thing to do a very difficult thing, to put their trust in God. Think of Abram in Genesis chapter 12. Many of you know that story. God told him, Abram, I'm gonna bless you, I want you to go. You don't need a GPS, you don't need a compass, you don't even need a map. I'll tell you where to go, and Abraham, well, he did that, he went. How about Joshua a few centuries later? There again, God came to Joshua, he also told him to go. In the Old Testament, God told his people to go a lot of times. Lead my people into the promised land. A land where, by the way, 10 out of the 12 Israelite spies said, there's no way we can do that because we looked at them. Those people are giants. And so they came back with the report. And you remember what Joshua and Caleb said? You're right. We believe you spies. We can't do it, but God can. And so they went. Joshua did the very difficult thing. He actually trusted in God. I know we're several months away from Christmas, but this week it didn't stop me from thinking about it. How about Mary, the mother of Jesus? God told her through the Holy Spirit, Mary, you're going to have a baby boy conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now go. Tell Joseph, who's looking a little pale. 
Mary did a very difficult thing. She actually believed God. She trusted in him. The Apostle Paul was the greatest missionary that the world has ever known outside of Jesus. God's mission for Paul involved being beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, sleep-deprived, in constant danger, and with hardly any food to eat. And it also involved Paul trusting God in all of those circumstances, even finding joy and contentment in circumstances that you and I would say, that's impossible. But he trusted in God. And of course, Jesus is our supreme example. He's the greatest example of what it means and how difficult it can be sometimes to actually trust in God. His heavenly Father called Jesus to go to the cross, to be crucified for sins that he did not commit, to bear the wrath of the holy God on him, and Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. First Peter 2. Church, trusting in God means doing the hard thing over and over and over again. And I don't, know, I don't know what situation it is that perhaps you are facing today, but I know that every last one of us in this room has some circumstance or situation today where we are needing to trust God. We're facing some bit of trouble, perhaps. There's some dilemma. There's something that's vexing to us and we're not sure how it's going to go, and we may not even be sure how it's all going to end. And perhaps it is related to your job or to your career. Maybe it is that a brewing conflict in your family, something that you've been wrestling through, and you're, you're just not sure what's going to happen. It's the word cancer, or canceled, or I quit, and I'm done, or I'm leaving. Perhaps it's a whole lot of uncertainty about the future, or you're here this morning bearing all kinds of regret about the past. Whatever it is you might be facing this morning, you need a clear picture of what trusting in God actually looks like. Even more, for all of us, we actually need to see someone who is trusting in God, who is doing the very difficult thing, the very hard thing that we are called to do, and we need to learn from him. And that is what Psalm 16 provides for us. This psalm, it's a song, it's a song of trust in God. David here affirms his absolute confidence in God, come what may, regardless of what the next hour or the next few days or eternity might have for him. So we're given a picture here of what it actually means to trust in God in some troubling times, or in uncertain times, or frankly, to trust in God when you don't even know what tomorrow might bring. So there are four aspects of trusting in God that I want to show you this morning, and I hope, I pray, I'm trusting God that he will bring some encouragement and comfort to your own soul. First, trusting in God means that you actually turn to him for help. Trusting in God means that you're actually turning to him for help. Verse one, David says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. 
So that's David's request for help. In fact, this is the only petition here in this whole psalm. This is the only thing that David asks of God. He doesn't make any other requests. His plea here is for God to guard him, to shelter him, to protect him, to to preserve him. Now, why does David need God's protection? Why is David running to God for refuge here? Well, we don't actually know. We don't know the specifics. He doesn't tell us exactly what situation, what's troubling to him, what hardship is he facing, what bit of uncertainty. In other Psalms, David actually does tell us. You may remember in Psalm 11, he was, he was surrounded by wicked people. In Psalm 23, David says, I'm in the presence of my enemies. But we don't actually know what kind of uncertainty or hardship or trouble David was facing here. And I actually think that is to our spiritual advantage. That's actually a blessing because this psalm is applicable to us all. It's it's, in whatever uncertainty or whatever trouble or whatever hardship that you are facing today, this psalm is for you. This psalm is for, for all of us. And so if we are to trust in God as David did here, if we're to do the hard thing but the necessary thing this morning, it means then that we're actually going to need to turn to him for help. So church, you you will only turn to God for help when you actually recognize how helpless you are. Otherwise you won't, I won't either. You're only gonna turn to God for refuge, you're only gonna turn to him for preservation, you're only gonna look to him for security when you actually begin to confess that whatever it is facing in front of you, that you can't face that alone that you don't have the abilities, you don't have the skills, you you, you can't predict the future, you don't have the strength. Now I know nobody, nobody here likes to admit to any sort of weakness. We would rather not be confronted with any sense of helplessness, nobody naturally asks for help, whether directions to the restaurant or directions for life. In fact, it, it kinda goes against what we're taught from an early age. We're taught to be self-reliant. We're we're, we're taught to be independent. We're we're taught to take care of your business, handle your business. Which is why trusting in God, actually turning to him in faith, as David does here, that takes immense spiritual courage. Takes guts. Guys, trusting in God and turning to him in faith is one of the more manly things that you can do. And ladies, it's one of the more courageous things that you can do. But none of us will do it unless we first actually acknowledge and admit that we are helpless apart from him, that we actually need his help. A week ago, I was uh, coming back from the border and drove by a Silverwood theme park and saw the very throngs of happy people on those roller coasters, and I think it's Timber Terror there, that's the, the one right when you pass, and so I was driving by and thinking, I, I want to vomit. I don't know why anybody <laughs> would want to do that. I can't even do a somersault without getting dizzy. And so the times with my kids that I've been on a roller coaster, I actually feel like I'm testing God, not trusting in him. 
But I know some of you like roller coasters, and that's totally fine. We could, I'll drop you off and pick you back up later. <laughs> but it would be odd if, let's say I'm, I'm in line for timber terror, and you guys know how this, you wait in line, and then the, the car comes in, and everybody exits one side, and I move into that car, and I say to the, the operator, hey, you know what? I don't need the restraint today. I don't need the bar coming down. I got this. I don't need your help. I've got a plan. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna hold on to my seat really tightly. So I don't, I don't need the restraint. I'm just gonna white knuckle it. See what happens. That would be foolish, wouldn't it? Yet some of you are doing exactly with God. Lord, I got this. I don't need your help. I got a plan. I don't need your restraints. I don't need your protective harness. I don't need your help. Lord, I, I got a plan. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to hold on. And I might need to white knuckle it. But that's my plan. Friends, what have you been trying to solve on your own? What have you been trying to figure out? What, what is it in your life that either maybe you've been actively ignoring God or resisting him, but, but you still really haven't turned to him for help, and instead you're you're trying to hold on. Give it to him. Turn to him. Do you know that your heavenly father will solve whatever it is that you are facing? He will actually solve it in his good time according to his wise, sovereign plan. And you know what? Throughout it all, he'll actually care for you. God offers to us his children, his protective harness, his restraint, his help. But you have to acknowledge that you first need his help and turn to him. And that's what David is doing here. That's really the first thing we see him doing. He's turning to God for help. Here's the second thing. Trusting in God means seeing God as the greatest gift and not simply as one who gives gifts. It's verse two. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So David is convinced that there's nothing good that is not from God. And even more, he acknowledges here that God is his highest good, the best gift of all. The, the, uh, sort of the literal rendering here of this, this Hebrew phrase, it's, it paints us a picture as if David is, is now doing inventory on his life. And so you can imagine maybe he's got that clipboard out and he puts on his reading glasses and he's just examining his life and he's checking off the boxes. Yes, that's from the Lord. That's also a good gift. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this. Thank you for this. And then at some point, he puts the clipboard down, he takes his glasses off, and I imagine he just kind of looks up to the sky and says, Lord, Above you, beside you, beyond you, there's nothing good. There's no other good than you. Even, Lord, if all of these blessings that I'm thankful for, even if they all went away, if they all disappeared, I would still have you. And God, you, you actually are enough. You are enough. A little bit later on in the Psalms, we read Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, 
but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Church, the greatest blessing God can possibly give to us is himself. And if we do not have God, then any of those earthly gifts or practical blessings that we all enjoy, they're not going to be satisfying. If God gave you great wealth, off-the-charts wealth, but didn't give you himself, would you still take it? If God gave you intellectual brilliance, you have degrees upon degrees upon degrees, you are the smartest person that walks into the room and everybody knows it. If he gave you that, but he didn't give you himself, would you still be happy? Satisfied? If you went to heaven and walked down those streets of gold and there was no sin and there's no suffering and there's no conflict, there's just consummate joy, but, but Jesus wasn't there, Would you still take that? God himself is the gift. He's the blessing that makes all the other blessings satisfying and actually worthwhile. So church, God is meant to be worshipped, not used. Trusting in God means treasuring God, not simply holding out your hands, taking from him. The temptation for all of us is to say, Lord, I've thought through this. Here's my plan. Here's what I think should happen. Now bless it. And instead, God is saying, look, I've got a far greater plan for you. I've got a far greater plan to bless you. Now trust me. So are you willing to do that? Are you willing to do the hard thing? To trust in him this morning because he is the greatest blessing. One writer said of Psalm 16, she said, it tells us that the children of God are people who have struck it rich every day of their lives. If you're a Christian, indeed, that is the case. We may not always feel like it, and no doubt there are really hard, hard days. But if we just take a step back for a moment, we really have struck it rich. Absolutely. Look down at verses 5 and 6. David seems to indicate this. He says that the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Talk about striking a rich. This is the language and imagery of Joshua, the book of Joshua, where Joshua led God's people to the promised land and at the conquest, conquest of Canaan, he, he divided up the promised land among the 12 tribes. So each had their allotment. So each tribe was given their portion. They had clear boundary lines that marked that land off from the others and and marking the borders of their land. And that land for those tribes was their inheritance to be passed down from one generation to the next. And David here is simply saying, God is my allotment. The Lord is my inheritance. And so for, for believers in God, we have an inheritance that is almost beyond description. We get God. We get God. When the lot is cast as a believer in God through faith in Jesus Christ, you get him. And so if you're trusting in this God, 
Well, your security and your safety doesn't come then from your possessions or whatever practical earthly blessings you may have. No, your safety, your security, your hope for today and tomorrow comes from knowing God and trusting in God and living faithfully in his presence. And that's why if you look down to verse 11, I happen to think maybe David is is shouting at this point, but that's a marginal reading. At the very least, here's what he says. You make known to me, O God, the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Church, this is what God has done for us. God the Father loves you enough to make you, through faith in Christ, part of his family, to include you in the inheritance. And David here has absolute confidence that God is his greatest gift, that God is his greatest treasure, his highest good. That's where David's heart is set. And that's where our hearts need to be set as well. That's the second thing we learn here. Trusting in God means seeing God as the greatest gift. Not simply as just one who gives gifts. Here's the third thing we learn. Trusting in God means getting around God's people who also trust him. It's verse three. Trusting in God means you you get around the people of God because they also trust in him. Verse three, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. David's saying, I love God and I love his people. So if we love God, well, we will love his people and we'll actually love being around God's people. Especially if you are in danger of doubting God, doubting his promises for you when perhaps your soul is aching over some type of loss, maybe when you are dreading the next couple hours of your life. Get around God's people who love him and know him and who are also trusting in him. That's why we, we really shouldn't take for granted Sunday mornings, times like this, where we can gather with the saints in corporate worship. We ought not take for granted home groups and discipleship groups and Bible studies and playdates in the park and hanging out with guys after work. I mean, one of the things that I'm so thankful for here at GCF is, is that we really do care about each other, and by and large, most of us actually really enjoy spending time together outside of a Sunday morning service. Maybe it is having a meal together. It's, it's working on a project together. It's fixing stuff together. It's running to Home Depot to get things for the fourth time. <laughs> but most of us, most of us, I think, by God's grace, enjoy spending time together, and that is by God's grace, brothers and sisters. Even among a church, that doesn't happen naturally. This is God's grace for you. It's God's grace for me. It is God's grace for us. Because isolation from your church family, isolation from brothers and sisters who who know you, will slowly but surely over time harden your heart both towards God and towards God's people. So one of the best ways to strengthen, one of the best ways to grow in your trust in God is to make sure that you are around others who are also doing the very same thing. They're also trusting 
in God, they're doing the very difficult thing as well. So I wonder how many, how many Christian friends do you have? And I'm not looking for a number there. Well, I have two, I have seven. I have innumerable. The, the emphasis there really is on the Christian part, and by that I simply mean how many people do you have in your life who actually know you or know you well enough that they will press in, they will ask you hard questions when you are in danger of being either spiritually drifting or of just being lured away and quitting altogether? Do you have any people like that in your life? And can anybody else count on you to be that kind of friend to them? In our day, we've come up with a name for those who drift away. It's called deconstructing your faith. And sadly, almost every week, you, you can probably say this as well, uh, at least I read a, about some well-known pastor or known Christian who has walked away from Jesus, abandoned Orthodox Christianity, and calls it his or her deconstruction testimony. It's, it's so very sad. It's also sobering. How are you going to make sure that that doesn't happen to you? How are you going to make sure that a year from now or five years from now or ten years from now that you don't become yet another statistic of turning away from God and trusting in all kinds of other gods? Because the temptation is real. It's ever-present, in fact, especially in uncertain times, especially perhaps when there's some bit of suffering or you're walking through trouble of some sort, it's so very easy for your heart to, to turn away from trusting in God. And when you turn away from trusting in God, you're, you're open. You open yourselves up then to danger, to turning to all kinds of other things or people. And so, yes, it, you may not be bold enough to say this, but you may be holding out hope for that next government and that next election. Finally, they're going to solve things. They're going to make life better. Certain philosophies, certain ideologies, they become more tempting. Or perhaps it just may be good old-fashioned pragmatic self-help strategies that will work, and you're right. They will work for a few days, maybe even a bit longer. But in the end, they're going to be bankrupt. In the end, they're going to lead you away from God. Running after other gods isn't the solution. David here, verse four, he broadens our thinking and he tells us where that road actually goes. And so heed this warning, brothers and sisters. The sorrows of those who run after other gods shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So here's what I'm saying. Trusting in God means getting around God's people who are also trusting in him. But trusting in God also means a steely determination to not be lured away by all those who don't. So trusting in God means running to God and refusing to run after all kinds of other gods because you know what is waiting for you. David says, what's waiting if you pursue other gods and you run after other gods? Sorrow upon sorrow, upon sorrow, upon endless sorrows. And in David's day, the, the gods of the ancient world that were so tempting for God's people, well, they were plentiful, 
They were all over the place. Not unlike our day, but in David's day, the gods had specific names. There was the god of sex, there was the god of fertility, there was the god of a good harvest, the god of war, the god of good weather, and on and on it went. And the system was actually pretty simple. If you wanted, for instance, a good harvest for your crops, then, well, you gave those gods the appropriate sacrifice. If you wanted success in battle, you appeased the god of war. Again, if you wanted money or power or wealth, there were gods for all of these things, and as long as you made the appropriate sacrifice, well, it was thought that you did your job. You'll be blessed. Your sacrifice was intended to manipulate those gods into basically doing what you wanted them to do. Now, our gods are, well, they're not statues that we line up here at church every Sunday, take one when you leave, nor are they probably statues that are, that are in your living room, they sit on your fireplace mantle and you bow down to them. Of course not. But they're no less tempting to us. Our gods are no less pleasurable. We may, in fact, run after all of these other gods with as much enthusiasm and passion and pleasure just like the people in David's day did. Why? Because we're all living for something or someone. Because we all have certain desires in our hearts that want and treasure and value and run after all sorts of things. And if that's someone or something that we ultimately really desire, that we put as our highest good, if that someone or something is not ultimately God, it's the God of beauty, it's the God of power, it's the God of wealth, it's the God of a good reputation and a good name, it's the God of comfort, it's the God of leisure, well, then you're headed in the wrong direction. And you are headed, as David says, for endless and inescapable sorrows. So yes, choose your friends wisely, please. But even more, get around God's people and stay around God's people so that you are not lured away and you become another sad and tragic statistic of, of a life running after all kinds of other gods. Fourth, trusting in God means praising God for what he's doing in the present even as you confidently expect him to provide for you in the future. It's verses 7 and 8. Trusting in God means acknowledging the good that he is doing here and now, today, as you look forward with hope to what he will do for you in the future. Verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Now notice the, the present tense there in verse 7. He gives me counsel. Now David is saying God is speaking to me even in the night. He's instructing me. He's making me wise. Even when I go to bed and I lay my weary little head on my pillow, God is teaching me. He is instructing me. I am, I'm thinking more and more God's thoughts. So in the face of uncertainty, in the face of trouble, when perhaps David is alone, when he's afraid, 
God is present. He is near. He is counseling him. He is instructing him. So David, yes, is doing the very hard and difficult thing. He is trusting in God. And God is fulfilling his promise to David that even as he sleeps, he is near. He is present. And as a result, because God is near and God is present, David, verse 8, will not be shaken. In verse 9, there's actually gladness in his heart, David says. So you see what's going on there. David is praising God for, for the good that he is doing presently, his present counsel, his present comfort. And that church is, is really a new covenant promise from God for every believer in Jesus Christ. Christians down throughout the centuries have been in some very, very difficult situations where it was almost impossible, at least from a human perspective, to trust in God. And yet they found God's present counsel and his comfort to be sufficient. Here's how the Apostle Paul wrote about one of his such experiences, 2 Timothy 4.16. Paul writes, at my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me, but may not be charged against them. In other words, Paul doesn't hold any offense at all. He says, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. So how do you gain confidence for what God will do in your life in the future? Well, one way is to consider and acknowledge what he's actually doing today. The good that God is doing in your life and in your heart today. Is he currently forgiving your sins? Is he sheltering you from a storm that's swirling around? Is he providing comfort for you in uncertainty? Is he opening up perhaps doors and opportunities and friends and maybe even adventures that you didn't even think about, that you didn't even pray about? Well, thank him for that. Praise him for that. That's, that's what David is, is doing here. And as he's trusted God in the past, he's now trusting God in the present, and because of that, he has confident hope that the same God will be faithful to him in the future. So look with me at verse 8. These are future tenses here, folks. I shall not be shaken. Verse 10, you will not abandon my soul. That is, that is future. That has not happened yet. That is something down the road. In fact, David in those verses is looking through the, the long corridors of time and eternity, and he's not looking ahead with dread. He's not looking ahead with discouragement or disdain or even fear. David is looking ahead with hope, with joy, with, with a peace, in fact. Now, what does David expect that God will do for him in the future? Verse 10, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the place of death. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. So David begins here to trust in God for his future. It's a glorious future. For David knows that God will be faithful to him, verse 11, 
Verse 11 indicates that there is, in fact, life after death. So David is starting to get the picture here that there is a resurrection in store for him. So he has great hope, great encouragement to face tomorrow. Now, verses 9 and 10 are critical in our understanding here of this psalm and how this all fits together. And the, really, the question really for us is, as I begin to land the plane, who's David talking about in verses 9 and 10? I mean, is David actually talking about himself? Lord, you're not going to abandon my soul. You're not going to let your Holy One see corruption. Well, that wasn't the case for David, was it? Because he died, and his body did see corruption in the grave. And if you go back to verse 8, I shall not be shaken. I have set the Lord always before me. Well, we know that David did not always set the Lord before him. In fact, in his probably most infamous sin, sleeping with Bathsheba, causing her husband, then sending him to the front line, Uriah the Hittite, to be murdered, That doesn't sound like a guy who always set the Lord before him. So Psalm 16, clearly, David is not talking about himself ultimately. He's actually pointing us to someone else. He's pointing us to Jesus. Because Psalm 16, brothers and sisters, is ultimately about Jesus. And don't take my word for it. I I don't say that on my authority. I actually say that because that's what the Apostle Paul and Peter said, because they actually both preached on Psalm 16. And you can read that, far better sermon than the one you just heard, Peter at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 25, and Paul in Acts chapter 13. And both of them, as they preached on Psalm 16, left no doubt that Psalm 16 was actually a picture of the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ as he Uh, completed the mission that God had for him on this earth, which was ultimately to die on a cross for our sins. They left no doubt, this is about Jesus. And so that's why, as Peter says, this is Acts chapter 2, verse 29, Peter says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. That's pretty airtight. Okay, it's not there. Verse 20, but being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, this is David, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So you know what Peter is saying there? David also knew who Psalm 16 was also about. In fact, David was convinced that Psalm 16, as he looked down the corridors of time and eternity, that he saw the very resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and he wrote about it a thousand years before it came to pass. So yes, if if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you know that your physical death is not the end for you. It wasn't the end for Jesus. It's not going to be the end for you. Praise God, your future is secure. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus, then really what you're saying is you are choosing to run after other gods. 
and you're going to hold on and white knuckle it on Judgment Day. And that would be foolish. What we have here in Psalm 16 is nothing less than, brothers and sisters, than the expression of trust between Jesus and God, his heavenly Father. So in Psalm 16, we have a front row seat to the kind of trust that Jesus has for God, his Father. We have the very experience here of Jesus trusting God, his heavenly Father, trusting in his plan for him of Jesus time and time and time again, perfectly doing a very hard and difficult thing, trusting in God's perfect plan, even if it meant his own death. And so let me, as we close, I'm just going to read Psalm 16 again. The words will be up on the screen, but as I read it, allow your mind and your heart to consider Jesus. Consider his life. Consider his ministry. Consider his experience as he lived as a man on this earth. Consider what it looked like for him to trust in God. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply their drink offerings of blood. I will not pour out. I will not take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You, Heavenly Father, hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Jesus, even as he hung on the cross and experienced the full weight of the wrath of God, said, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Brothers and sisters, that's what trusting in God entails. That's what it means. That is Jesus doing the very hard thing, the very difficult thing to perfection. Psalm 16 not only gives us a picture of what that looks like, but it also gives us provision because Psalm 16 shows us that we still have hope when we don't trust in God as we ought to. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're feeling even a little bit guilty because you know you don't trust God as you want to, as you ought to. Perhaps your faith is weak this morning and it's flickering, you're barely holding on. Well, we have a Savior to turn to and to trust. Psalm 16 shows us the provision that God in his grace and kindness and love for you has made. He's provided a Savior, Jesus, who perfectly trusted his heavenly Father all the way to the cross. 
So look to him. Look to the one who perfectly trusted in his heavenly father who always did the right thing, the holy thing, even the difficult thing. And you will find hope for your soul.